All right, what is up, everybody? Welcome to season two of Opening Set. This is not a new episode. This is a mega mix mashup of all the greatest moments that may have flown underneath your radar for, uh, like I said, season two. We kind of like get the best moments that uh, kind of stuck with me, then to kind of bring it in my head for the past few. And then uh, kind of, you know, it's for all you fans. It's kind of a greatest hits type of thing. Or let's say you've never heard the podcast and kind of want to jump in at a certain spot. You can kind of check this out Or let's say You know you're a big fan You want to spread the gospel Of opening set You can kind of show people Oh this is kind of The questions that they do It's serious stuff Family stuff DJ stuff You know sometimes A little bit of humor Mixed in uh, A little housekeeping Before we jump into this uh, I go by King Most You can find me On Instagram Under H-E-Y King Most Or better yet Find my mixes And uh, music Under uh, King Most um, Bandcamp And SoundCloud My dude John Reyes The uh, producer of this show Makes sure everything Sounds right and gets done correctly you can find him on instagram under stank palmer s-t-a-n-k-p-a-l-m-e-r i still think that's so funny like i'll never not think that's a hilarious name or you can find him on soundcloud under john reyes j-o-n-r-e-y-e-s and i say that because he's got some low-key fire lurking on his page and if you're a music person or a dj you might want to add those to the crates and since you know our own personalities, you can actually follow the actual podcast under Opening Set Podcast on Instagram. But better yet, more importantly, jump on that SoundCloud, Opening Set, Spotify, Opening Set, Apple Music, Opening Set. You can find us all there, including other places as well. And uh, maybe shoot us an old email. Maybe you want to book uh, John Reyes and myself to DJ your uh, your seventh grade dance or your bar mitzvah or your uh, ratchet you know, turn up night in Southern California. We're flexible. I don't know. <laughs> Opening set podcast at gmail.com. All right, let's crack open the season two. This recap, unleash the content. Our first guest was DJ Toy. She just came back from a long, long couple of years in Shanghai doing her thing. Uh, previously, she spent a decade in New York City and she does call the bear at home. She has tons of experience and years in the music industry. She currently daylights, maybe moonlights, I guess, as Bohan Phoenix's manager, a uh, up and coming uh, hip hop store from Asia. And also, of course, DJs. A couple of things that stuck in my mind about the conversation. And I, I it still kind of weirds me out. She kind of called out this whole thing about mixing in key. And I swear to God, since then, I'm always, you know, got to make sure songs are in key because uh, Lord knows, um, you know, we don't want to do that. But the other thing I remember from the conversation that stood out was I asked her about her parents, uh, what they think about what she does, you know, knowing that she does work in the industry and is also a DJ. So here's her take on that. I think in the beginning, they were definitely kind of apprehensive about it in a way. I mean, both of my parents are born and raised in the U.S., but specifically in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. And I think that makes them different from a lot of children of immigrants that might have grown up in other parts of the U.S., right? Um, they're also both independent business owners, and my mom's side of the family also were. So they always understood this sort of concept of wanting to do something for yourself your way, right? I think for me, like career wise, like I think they've always, I've always kind of like downplayed the importance of DJing in my stuff and talked a little bit more about like the professional side of my career, which was for as risky seeming as the music business might be. Like I worked at some of the biggest companies in it and I think they always took a lot of comfort in that. So it's always been all right. You know, I think my brother was definitely more difficult for them to stomach just because the concept of being a professional gamer at the time that he was first starting to do 
it was so untested that it just didn't feel real like, at all. To everyone's them. still like outside of esports. We're all like, whoa, what the fuck? We're all <laughs> yeah. so. So you're actually kind of like the dependable one. Like we're they're counting more on you. I know, believe it or not, yeah. right? Well, I, I think, and again, I think that's something that I definitely can identify with. You know, when I told my parents, you sure, know, you know, I was in college and like, yeah, I'm DJing full time. And when you start kind of saying like these brands, then it's like, oh, okay. Oh, you know, like I've done Red Bull stuff and just like you have like, oh, I know what that is. So yeah. you're not just DJing in a bar for like 10 people. Right. Or you're just seeing you travel and, and being in a magazine. So yeah, I guess all parents, immigrant or not, need their DJ child to have some type of anchor to make them understand what it is. No, totally. So totally. when you started working for 88 Rising, the fader was that kind of like their big, okay, well, are, are I she, think, but she's going to be okay. Yeah. Well, when I first, my first job out of college was working at William Morris Endeavor, which is yeah, the biggest huge. talent agency. And so they were always like, they're like, okay, cool. That's like a real thing. They provide healthcare. Like you're like, you know, making a salary and someone's actually paying it yeah. tight. And you have sick and, days and all the things. That, yeah, yeah. Yeah. All the like normal people adult things. So that took a lot of the pressure. Did it take a lot of the pressure off of DJing? Not in terms of doing it, but you know, making sure that your parents were happy. Yeah, it? no, totally. And and I was happy about it too. It didn't feel like a compromise at all. It was just like conveniently palatable for them too. The DJing stuff, they were always cool with it. You know, they were always cool with it. And now the reason why I thought that segment was really important because I mean, to be honest, it just resonated a lot with me. Um, I just know my parents and her parents and most parents of creatives, you know, DJs included, they're not really sure what their child is doing until you start seeing like checks and uh, name brands and oh, this job that she took, you know, offers health insurance and sick days and salary. These are all things that you have to really show your folks to make them understand that what you're doing is real and not just a kind of like pie in the sky, like scheme pipe dream that's going to kind of come, you know, crumbling down. Yes, these are things creatives think about and I'm sure parents probably do as we continue on with the season two recap of opening set. Our second guest, uh, this is probably, it's going to go down as the uh, highlight for my life. I interviewed DJ Shortcut. If you don't know who DJ Shortcut is, let me explain. One of the best DJs that will ever touch a pair of turntables, part of the famous Invisible Scratch Pickles, B-Junkies, and the Triple Threat DJs, titles upon titles, and just a, to a super sweetheart. So here's the thing. You know, we all kind of see him as, you know, this technical DJ monster, the machine. But it was really cool. And this is kind of what we do the podcast to kind of show the other sides of uh, these individuals and their lives. Case in point, I asked Shortcut about his uh, relationship with his daughter. And he just, you know, opened up and shared a lot. And just I could see that he's really doing an awesome job raising an awesome young person. Oh, so, man. You know, I, I talk to her all the time, like, especially doing what I do for, for a living. Just to have to explain of why is daddy leaving this weekend? Why, why can't you be with me this weekend? Oh, daddy has to work. Daddy has to be out of town. But, you know, I do this for you. I do this for us. And when I come back, it'll be fun. Like, daddy was able to save enough money so we can go to Tokyo Disneyland next year. I Like last year, I took her to Tokyo and the Philippines for the first time. Damn, bro. It was just me and her. That's you know, beautiful. The dopest fucking trip I ever took in my life. Like, just me and her. Just riding the trains together. We, my boy has an Airbnb in, in Shibuya. Uh -huh. Just kicked it, and I was just cooking for it. We're just cooking and just having a good time. And I was about ten years old when I really knew about the Philippines and you know struggle, what it means to you. What it means to me and what, what it is. You know, what the struggle. Yeah, real struggle. Yeah, not real no, struggle. Not like no one booking this one. That's like sleeping yeah. on the street struggle. Yeah. yeah. So I wanted her to see that. It was a dope that my job was able to take me and her out there 
to show her, like, you know, what do you think you got it bad? Look at that. Because sleeping on the street. What? Why are they home, Dad? This, this is their home. Are you kidding me? Like, you know? Now, let me tell you about capitalism. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's why, you know, that's why my, 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 my daughter's really, she's a, she's, she's a, big inspiration for me to keep this going you know what I mean really so she, she was kind of like a second but well oh. I, I assume financially but because uh, you wanted to share more with her or no just to keep going you know she, she was motivated to keep doing stuff you know what I mean like you know provide for her of course one but just to she's she's like my biggest fan <laughs> you know what I mean dad you know you gotta have me born IG videos because I noticed when I look at my videos with you you got a lot more likes and views and I can't front, man. She's absolutely right. Like, there's one of just me and her in Vallejo, and she's on her head to me scratching. It was like 40,000. Like, what the <laughs> hell? <laughs> and you, like, yo, here's my brand new teen. Yeah. 800. 800, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Looking uh, like mine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like, kids will bring that out of you. Yeah. When I'm home, I'm trying to be with her as much as I can, but at the same time, yeah, she inspires me. I tell her, yo, see, the, when she comes to the studio here, she'll look at all the records and, you know, like, damn, 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 there's a lot of records and stuff. Yeah, this is yours. Oh, this would be, oh, okay. You so do you, I, I was going to ask, would you want her to become a DJ? <sighs> <laughs> yeah, I like that. I like the big inhale okay, pause. Okay, That's okay. good. Because when she was younger, she didn't really get it. Mm -hmm. She was like more of like, damn, dad, I need a helmet. I'm like, why? Your music giving me a headache. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, but you can't really say that because that's what's putting food on our table. I was like, yeah. oh, okay. It took her, um, her mom gave her a towel to continue on stage one day. For like a crowd of a thousand or whatever. Yeah, and you're sweating. And she's tripping out like as she's walking up to me. She's looking at the crowd at the same time, like, oh shit. So it kind of gave her an idea of what the job meant, you know? And like, you know, as far as music, she doesn't really have a love for any of the new shit. So it's strictly Prince, Madonna, Michael, and The Whip. Damn. You know I mean? So when I do Soul Slam or Wonderful oh, she'll 35, love it. she'll be there she'll, like, hey! She'll love it. And I'll be in my, in my walker and my, <laughs> my space legs, wherever the fuck's going to be the future. <laughs> she'll be there. I'm like, oh, hey, what's yeah. up? Hey, but, hey, I remember but, you. But she's, she's up on it. And that, that's what's dope. I said, yo, all this music in here, it's like books because she loves books. Good. So I tell her, yo, every record in here is like a book. If you read it, there's stories behind it and all that stuff. And like, you don't appreciate it now, but trust me, when you have time to yourself to see all this stuff, uh -huh. you're going to love it. Aside from what I just mentioned earlier, you know, this whole drive behind this podcast is again to humanize and share more of a DJ's life. But as I stated in the clip, it's really great to see guys like me, DJ dudes, and also people of color having a very strong, like, presence of their family on their social media and as they explain he goes and you know tries to expose his daughter to the highs and lows of the world and it's been uh, it's been awesome to see kind of him be rejuvenated again and inspired to kind of like even take his career and his talent to like even like a higher level which is kind of impossible to think about so yeah that part a little struck out my mind and you know it's really just an awesome conversation we might even do a part two because there's way more questions we want to ask and kind of we want to nerd out a little bit more but anyways shortcut shout out to you thanks for your time and for our third guest on opening set oh man uh, the big brother, the mentor, the homie, DJ Spinner from Brooklyn, New York. It was uh, also another treat to sit and talk with him. And he you know, shared a lot of history about you know his career and uh, how it started. But one of the things I uh, really liked about this episode and you know, kind of stayed with me also was when I get to hear him talk about his kind of mental game going into a gig. Um, just kind of that level of practice and, and dedication and enthusiasm. Because we know technically he's great and we know his song selection. But do we know really where his head's at? And luckily he shared uh, with us how his mind works in that situation. 
I've always wanted to be a DJ even as a kid. So when I'm like seven, eight years old listening to the radio, when disco was big, 81, 82, the master mixes on Kiss FM, Shet Pettibone, T. Scott, like all these amazing DJs that were doing blends, putting two records together. I was recording these to cassette and listening back marveled wondering how do they do this so you're you know? a lifer man yeah i'm a lifer uh, yeah <laughs> going going to block parties any party that i can go to where there's a dj i'm right there front row front row watching and studying everything yeah. you know what and i'm still like that i'm still a kid i still feel that young fire my wife bugs out on me all the time because sometimes she doesn't get why i'm in a rush to go to certain clubs or the urgency because i still get excited to see my favorite DJs play, just to see how they transform the crowd. Like, that still excites me. Yeah, and just the whole, like, I always felt like the opening set of a DJ says a lot about who they are. It says a lot about their music knowledge, their taste, understanding the flow of a night. And that's when you kind of really see, like, okay, what... Anyone can play hits. We all yeah, can do that. But yeah. what do you do to set that up? Yeah, yeah. Setup is important. Story is important. Yeah. Do you still get nervous when you DJ? Depends. When I play for educated music crowds where you can't give them the okie doke and just play whatever, those are the most challenging because you have to do your homework and you got to come correct or you face the backlash. But I care so much about what's happening on the dance floor. I'm a big energy person. I always monitor vibes and energy. You know, I channel that first. I've gotten to the point now where when I'm spinning, I don't necessarily have to look at the crowd to see what's happening. I feel it. And I can change what's happening based on pure emotion, no matter what the set is. I got to feel and hear the crowd. And I feel like that's a lost art. You know, I feel like so many people, especially with technology and the way people consume music these days and learn about music these days, like they don't have that club history, that club experience where there's bodies that all they want to do is dance and the DJ has the power, the real power. People go out now for different initiatives, different purposes, you know, and they want to hear what they know. DJs are comfortable. They just, they program all their sets in Serato or if they're whatever, like they just have everything pre-programmed and there's no real free format anymore. You know what I mean? Like the class of DJs that I'm in now, like my brothers, Vince Medina and the likes, like we understand music. And I think it takes a lot these days to play like that, to play with that kind of understanding because so many people have programmed themselves because of how society is right now. So talking to John about this quote, I think we've come to agree that we know his you know, level of talent and skill as a producer, but also as a DJ. But hearing him admit that he gets nervous and there's a level of respect that he wants to make sure he gives the audience at the dance floor is kind of like just a, a golden gem to kind of walk away from because, you know, you can't phone it in bullshit. It's, it's obvious if you're not if you're not doing your due diligence and respecting, you know, DJing and, and your patrons, then you're going to fall flat. So it's also just a good reminder, too, for all those DJs that, you know, have that level of success or kind of growing in that direction that you really have to take this thing seriously because otherwise you're just going to be another asshole in the booth. And our next guest on Opening Set Season 2 was our dude, DJ J Boogie. We talked about a lot of things. We talked about, you know, his time working with uh, Dubtronic, his, uh, his band, also his time at Pandora. 
But what really kind of stuck out to me was hearing like the amount of effort and, and just hard work people had to, you know, do to throw raves, go to raves, perform raves. And this is, you know, and just hearing this stuff and it just made me really just a respect pre-corporatized nightlife culture and festival. So really just, I, I just, again, I can't believe the lengths people went to just to go out. I, I, I would have done it. So <laughs> here you go, Jay Boogie breaking it down. I did some raves, yeah. Okay, because played we, at some raves. Because we had stuff. shortcut, and I asked him about the rave thing because I was too oh, young man. to go in there, and I so I have no On idea. Base. And it was such like a blip in time. So, yeah. what, so tell me your rave experience then. I used to DJ raves all the time, man. Especially in Oakland, you know, this was old, not old Oakland, but pre whatever pre twenty fifteen Oakland. Everybody, so yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, home base and. Oh my gosh, they used to do raves at that freaky hotel off the airport spot. And then, don't even know. For listeners, yeah. fill us in afterwards. Uh, I'm not, yeah, I'm not man. Sure. And then raves in San Francisco, warehouse parties in San Francisco. And were they, um, was this, so, was it kind of seen as like an outlaw thing at the time or yeah, counterculture? Yeah, thing? it was just like after hours parties, um, pop up parties. When I was, when I first lived in San Francisco, my roommate was dating one of the promoters that threw one of the biggest raves in the Bay Area called Felix the Felix the Cat, Felix the Dog or something like that. I think it's Felix the Dog. Yeah. And um, it was huge. And we did we did like a ticket point at our apartment one time. Wait, you're oh throwing a house God, party? Dude. Like an actual, you're selling no, tickets it to was your house? Like, yeah, we were selling tickets at the house. It was like you put the number on the voicemail and then it was the address and they should come and cash tickets, go. And then the, you meet me at the spot. Here's the map. Like old school rave. Oh my Shit. god, you dude, know what you're blowing my mind. I don't know anything about this. So before like <laughs> you uh, before another plan entertainment, okay. all this. So shit. this would uh, so this is what would happen. Someone would give you a flyer that would have all the DJs on it, and it would have like a heart or some, you know, corny ass weird graphic or whatever. And then there'd be a number on there and the date. And then on that date you called the number and on the machine it gave you the pickup point, and then you went to the pickup point, and then you got the ticket. When you got the pick a point and the ticket they told you where it was and then you went there and then it would pop off and then if the cops came and broke it up somehow there would always be like a plan b kind of thing where people would bounce to um and it was always after hours and it was like oakland san francisco warehouses back then soma was empty um so there was tons of warehouse parties uh-huh. that would happen down there and then out even past third i remember they would do like these crazy parties um, out in Hunter's Point in Bayview um, back in the day. So Damn, yeah, the, the look that John, our producer, gave me, like, you nerd, you don't know about that. I, don't, I didn't know anything about that. <laughs> the like, rave flyers. Yeah, yeah. I, I saw them, but I just, I don't know, I just And then they got them. really, really, really big, and then they started oh, okay, doing stuff. Before, okay, big, big, okay. This yeah, is and then they started small. getting really big, and then they would. there was always, every weekend at home base in Oakland off Hagenberg, there was a huge party, and then they just got so big, and so big, and And this is when so you started big. seeing those news, like those news broadcasts. Are your kids going to raves? Are they I think this it? was even before that. This was before the super duper designer drugs, but it eventually became that. Like okay. once they started doing the, um, what is it? The, uh, the big one. Yeah. The EDC? big one that they kept EDC and all yeah. that stuff. Yeah. Okay. This is what before that. And yeah, Pasquale was throwing raves in LA and all over the place. This was happening all over the U S and Europe. And so, I was yeah. sitting at home. You were uh, you're much younger apparently. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, Oh, okay. That's cool. Yeah. So another reason why I wanted to make sure we kind of talked about that because in opening set, we always talk about the, uh, you know, the entrepreneurial spirit of a DJ. And though raves are seen as, you know, big fun and lights and, you know, maybe hard partying, we still remember that it's still about creating your own space for yourself, 
for your community. Um, you know, if a venue isn't on your side, then you have to just basically do a party at a DIY space. So let's, you know, have a little more respect, you know, if we don't have already for what uh, people did back then. And also definitely now too, just the, again, creating something out of virtually nothing. Rayvon, and let me just say, uh, plur baby, peace, love, unity, respect. I sound like such a cop. Hello, friends. Are you plur? <laughs> As we roll along with the next guest in opening set of season two with our homegirl from Chicago. She's definitely an ambassador of the city. DJ King Marie, aside from representing the shy city wherever she goes, she is a, obviously a full-time DJ. Also just released an amazing EP of uh, R&B, so you can definitely check that out. But in this conversation, we kind of talk about the power of a venue and not so much the, uh, you know, just having a space, but having a space that's on your side, which is super important. We kind of bounce ideas back and forth about what it means to have that. Does somebody like you that actually has a clear set of morals and is actually about something, does that ever kind of cause a tension between, you know, DJ life and getting gigs? Or it's kind of mm -mm. like, never? No. If anything, I think me understanding what I'm doing it for, like I was saying, like the power of no, like this year has been the first year that I've been able to decipher what's for me or not. You know, like I really used to take every gig in L.A. Like I paid my dues by playing every gig because I wasn't from there and no one knew me. So I was like, well, I'm going to force feed the name King Marie down everyone's throat, you know, and show everyone what I can do free or paid, you know. That's a big part. DJs don't really talk about. They only talk yeah. about the big gig with the big check. Yeah, yeah. Not like, yo, I should nah, do, uh, nah, bring my like, gear for 50 bucks for five hours. Yeah, And, you know, I in New York, I used to play just for a free bar tab, you know, like that was my first residency, like at Fat Buddha, like I would go home almost like, I would spend more money yeah. than, you know, than I would make. And then like, you know, the car ride back to Brooklyn versus what I kind of made at the bar. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's something that DJs don't really talk about, you know, and then being able to know what your worth is. But yeah, like this year I've been specific and it's also the first year that I've had management. One of my best friends manages me and one of my homies is my day to day. And I have a team now to where I can like bounce ideas off of and like ask if it's fitting for my brand. And But really the power of no, it's almost like people are so respectful of it too. Like even if I say no, people are like, oh, like all good. Can you still pull up? Like, you know, like, would you mind? Like, and I'll still do shit like that. Like if I really believe in it, but you know, it's like for a nonprofit that doesn't have money, yeah, a budget for same, me. Same. Like, yeah. it's kind of like, man, I wish I could do all free gigs. Like I love doing charity work, you know, but I have to also be like strategic as to like what I have time for. Like I can't just pull up like, that's, you know, time is money at this point. And, and I wish I could. And it used to be where I could do that because I wasn't as busy as I am now. But, you know, if I can support, I will try how I can or I'll suggest a different DJ. Like, I'm always down to help in any aspect, you know. But, yeah, it sounds mean. Like, the no. saying no. Like, you know, no, like, no, it sounds no. mean. But at the end of the day, like, it's beneficial on both sides. Like, you know, I don't want to, like shortchange anybody or I don't want to like give anyone half of what I could give and you know yeah. like, so if I can just pull up I'll, I'll pull up talking about the whole power of no like for some reason I'm fine at that point too this is the first year like I turned down gigs now because mm -hmm. I think coupled with like just the 
the club owner, the club venue, what I have to play, what I don't want to play. Just like, you know what? Like, I'm good. I'll just take yeah, the night off. Cause yeah. I know fortunately there's like un- more than enough other gigs around that date or later that month. That's like, I don't need this type of like headache. headache. In my life. Yeah. Yeah. Playing, Getting playing micromanaged. Right. Yeah. That's, I cannot, I've worked so much. So it's not like I'm just like being a brat about where and what I want to play. It's like, no, I've already done all that. You know what I mean? Like to where it's like, I want to curate my own parties. So that's what I'm going to do because I don't want anyone to tell me what I can and can't do, you know? So it's like, I'm working with venues that know how I play and what my crowd is so that they understand that that's what it's yeah. going to be. That's such a, a very important component. Like John and I played this one club and it's one of the few bars that I actually stick around after the lights are on right, and right. I have a drink and we'll chop it up. Yeah, and how yeah. was your night? Right. Normally, unfortunately, I kind of grab the check like, all right, peace. Yeah. Because not to say I'm not supported at a lot of bars, but it's or clubs. It's just a little different when the venue appreciates you for what you do specifically mm-hmm. and what you bring to mm-hmm. their sensibility. It's a partnership. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's something that somehow it's gotten very skewed. It's almost where it's, if it's not a partnership, they see it as like, you know, you're the help and we're paying you mm-hmm. and you should be so lucky and we'll find somebody else type of thing. And I, I, haven't, I haven't felt that in a long time, but the the camaraderie of a venue yeah. that supports you and what, you're, what you do and all it's, that stuff. It's so important. I mean, and like, you know, I think, so I was, I was raised by DJs, like my big brothers are DJs. So, you know, I was like a little kid carrying you know, record bags to the van, like, and being excited, like, you know, or like touching vinyl, the excitement of feeling vinyl on your fingers, you know. But it's like, you know, we live in 2018 where everyone thinks they can DJ. I get it. I get the concept, but that's how you can tell, like, what venue will be appreciative of you as a DJ versus, like, thinking that you're... Expendable. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. When you finally get to that point where you have that trust of a venue, your kind of your performance there isn't just like, okay, I clock in at nine, I leave at two or what have you. It's more like I have this canvas and I can really do some awesome stuff here. Or as I stated, I won't get micromanaged. It's that idea of trust. So I kind of wanted to put that in there for the people that are DJs or are throwing events or you know, do anything creative is that don't sell yourself short and maybe try to find the right partner. It's one thing to have a venue, but it's a whole other thing to have a venue that trusts you and wants you there. It doesn't see you, as I stated, as the help. So something to think about. Continuing along with season two of opening set, we have my little brother, as I affectionately call him, DJ Nick Bike, originally from Ontario, Canada, but now in Vancouver. Now, to borrow a phrase from John Reyes, um, it's this whole DIY idea, you know, do it yourself. So here we have, you know, Nick Bike, who's, you know, your favorite DJ's favorite DJ and definitely somebody you've danced to many a time in a club. He has this idea and this kind of drive where he'll take popular music, he'll take, you know, music that's been forgotten and say, you know what? I don't like where the energy is on this song. It needs to be here or there or someplace else. So he kind of takes that power in his own hands and, you know, creates a whole series of, of remixes and songs that kind of become his calling card. Here's his kind of analysis on uh, edits and kind of the nuts and bolts of how it's done and, and the thought process behind it. Geez, like eight years ago, I started making them. It was just like, I basically just didn't like how certain songs were arranged. 
it just started with like cut and paste just for like my own DJ sets. And then I kind of started passing them around to friends and they were into them. And then I just, as I kind of learned more about like Ableton and doing different techniques, like read drums or things that like weren't really like remixes, but they're just like DJ tool type mm -hmm. shit. So I just kept making every month, just like doing whatever, whatever I really needed to do. Like I'd always have a, like a side crate when I was DJing be like, Oh, like I should change this kind of thing. And I'd just like end up with like a folder of like 30, 40, 50 things of yeah. like, like a to-do list basically. So then like afterwards I would just like sit down and knock, try and knock out like three, five, 10 a day kind of thing. Wow. They're not like always complex things, obviously, but uh -huh. just like shit to add to the arsenal. Add to the arsenal, yeah, 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 to get through the night. <laughs> get through five hours, yeah. four hours of work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of them were like really, really quick hitter type things. So like club tools that were like a minute long kind of thing. People were kind of like, would make jokes about them and be like, if you're not paying attention, like the song will be over, but kind of thing. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's, you know, for, for folks listening, that's really to make... I guess, again, our job easier, but really specifically is that they're just songs that are like really strong, but they might be a little old, so they don't have that same kind of like power or this production, There's a lot of like buildups and dips and just they kind of drag. And I always wonder like, why the fuck did that producer like leave that this like 30 seconds of silence and exactly. then like, it's a total mood killer. It's a total vibe killer. Like yeah. that train in the background that you could, <laughs> that isn't as audible as it is right now. So we'll, we'll work that in later. So yeah, you're making these DJ tools, but it's the amount you put out and it's this wide range of quality. Like, do you have like a system? Like, okay, from I'm gonna wake up at eight o'clock. From like nine to twelve, I'm making edits. Or is, it's you sound like you're like a machine. So I, I need to. I'm I'm kind of seeing it like that. Or how do you do it? I mean, it was all kind of based off what I was into at the time. Like, I was making a lot of Bloghouse DJ edits in like 2010, kind of thing. Yeah, cutting down like Errol Alkin re-edits type thing, or like Justice cut copy things yeah. like that, making them more dance friendly. Yeah, all in that realm. Uh -huh. And then uh, when I started playing more like pop clubs. It was like top 42 old type shit. I was still making the other edits, but then I was now making like commercial edits and that kind of thing. And then I started buying like funk and soul records and Motown stuff. So then I started making, like I would rip those or if I just had them on digital, then I'd be making edits for that kind of thing, for those kind of yeah, parties. Yeah, quantizing, so, like making the song fit like a certain BPM, make it easier for sure. you. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Or just like arrangement was a little bit different mm -hmm. than compared to like how pop music is arranged now. So I would kind of do the same thing I was doing always, just like making arrangement how I wanted it or just like cutting them down to like the hook or just like a verse and a hook kind of thing and having like, yeah, like a quantized section where you can kind of do some live blend shit without having to worry about your drummer going all over the place. Yeah, yeah. So when you hear a song now, are you is your mind automatically going to, okay, how can I edit this? Or you just kind of enjoy the song for what it is? Yeah it's hard to like listen to a song. <laughs> yeah, and you're like, how can I put an eight bar intro to this and make this better or easier from, yeah. So you, yeah. It, it's kind of ruined you in a way, or not ruined you, but it's, it's, it's giving like a different ear now. It's a different way to listen to music for sure. Okay, well, <laughs> that's actually kind of fun. Wow. So we look at our last three guests. They're really about taking the situation into their own hands. Nick Bike with the edits, making sure the music flows a certain way. We have King Marie talking about having a venue that respects you and maybe not work in the venue that doesn't really prize you as they should. Or with Jay Boogie is, okay, there's no venue, fine. We'll go throw a, a rave in an abandoned warehouse out in deep Oakland. And you know, all those ideas are really about, like I said, taking manager your own hands. And really that's kind of the spirit of what opening set is. It's really about, you know, there's no outlet for us. If there is, they're very kind of singular and they're kind of, you know, only about one type of DJ. So why don't we create our own platform where stories of DJs 
of all types get equal footing and equal shine. Finding your tribe. That's the only way I can preface this segment with our man, Sonny James, originally from Philadelphia, now lives in LA doing artist relations for Serato. For our you know, listeners that don't know Serato, that's kind of the go-to DJ program that we use. But beyond that, he is just a super, super talented club DJ. Like I said, Philadelphia, LA, and he's been all over the world. When I said finding your tribe, this is the, the prime example of it in motion. He talks about going out of his comfort zone, uh, you know, halfway across the world to Africa as he's DJing, I think for Bahamadia. And he just finds this community and this sense of love and respect that, um, you know, not all of us, uh, some of us do get it in our hometowns or our home countries, but sometimes not. So to hear this and the way he kind of talks about having a giant crowd that looks like him or him being African-American going to Africa and, you know, getting that respect and that just that uh, love was really just an awesome part of the conversation. So here we go. Sonny James. That was sort of my point with like the Bahamadia thing. I mean, we've been all around the world multiple times and people would travel from quite a distance to see us. So, so you, you mentioned, you know, Prague and I know you've been to China. Name other countries and cities you've been in because I feel like you've been a, a lot of places. Yeah, I mean, one of my favorite places to go is South Africa. Like I've been there with her multiple times. Multiple and, times. Mm-hmm. Big shout out to the homie DJ Ken Zero who's out there. Okay, he, yeah, 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 I know that so name. Ken Zero's like super proper DJ promoter, really like nice guy and just like super legit. He has a lot of relationships in radio, TV, everything. So he had a relationship with Sprite and they basically paid for us to come out a couple times. And yeah, it was just quite an experience because for one, a lot of artists don't ever get to go to Africa, let alone go to perform there. It's one of those continents that's sort of like written off from people like think about places to go. Everyone's like trying to go to Amsterdam, trying to go to Paris, trying to go to Japan, like all the typical places to go. But because those places are so typical and so frequented by artists, they're a little less excited than if you go to Dusseldorf, Germany, or if you go to Braunschweig, or you know, like these random places. So South Africa, it was just crazy because there's a whole different relationship that that audience had to her music and to hip hop because of apartheid and because of, you know, their history of just not even really knowing a lot of like American music before a certain time. So a lot of them came up on her music. So they come out in droves, like obviously tons of women. And it's a profound experience for, you know, an indie hip hop act especially as a DJ, to go somewhere where there's 3,000 black faces looking back at you. And they're excited to see you. And like a few years ago prior, that would be completely illegal and shut down. Right. So it was just special, you know what I mean? Because we've been a lot of places, and I appreciate the experience of all those places, but it's different when you go somewhere and the people look like you, and they're like, oh shit, like we're happy as hell that American black people came over here and actually fuck with us. We did a couple festivals, and like, you know, I'd get on stage and pick up the headphones, and there's like a roar oh my God, he's about to do it. And I'm like, oh shit. Like I never experienced that kind of love anywhere. So to have that happen and it's Africa, it's like, it's mind bending. And in addition to that, their knowledge of the music, we're doing a party, it's like, I don't know, say 2,500 people, 1.30 in the morning, I drop the next movement by the roots and every person in the room is screaming, the hot music, the hot music, the hot music. 
And I'm like, dog, we don't even get this response in Philly. Yeah. Yeah. So you go across the planet and people like they treat that music with so much respect. It's crazy, like, and I and I talk about this from time to time. But at one point, I'm playing with Ken Zero. He played "Don't Worry, Be Happy" in the middle of the set. By McFerrin. Everybody was with him. <laughs> Everyone was with him. Uh-huh. Even I was tapping my toe a little bit. Uh-huh. Shortly after that, he played uh, "Company Flow," <laughs> the fire in which you burn. Dude, these are the, we're like we're going inside baseball. Down, yeah, 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 we're, we're going, going down the, the we're going hole. down the rabbit hole. Yeah, of, rabbit hole. Of, sorry, of yeah, John smiling too. <laughs> everyone was with him. Everyone. So I think the reason why the Sonny James interview, especially that part, really stayed with me is because, you know, the life of a creative person doesn't really start until we get out of that comfort zone. You know, as creative people, we don't literally have to get out of a new place, but sometimes we really do. Like he had to go to, you know, come out to Los Angeles or, you know, other people have to kind of really start thinking and acting and doing things creatively different to start having that kind of those sparks of joy. That's what it's kind of it's all about. I know it sounds kind of, you know, woo-woo and kind of corny, but this is kind of what creative people do is we throw ourselves into these new kind of endeavors and we start realizing that the best parts sometimes really are out of our comfort zone. Like literally, it's taking ourselves out of zones we know and to go to other experiences and find that they're totally validating to kind of make this whole crazy thing of being a creative kind of worthwhile. And we'll just go ahead and keep doing it and doing it until we kind of find these kind of golden moments that we obviously remember for years on end. And for our last guest on opening set, we had the big dog, our dude Mike B, who's just like a straight up national treasure. And I think guys like him, like I stated in the intro, are so important to nightlife. They bring a legitimacy and just a level of talent that, you know, again, we need to have around. He's just so respected in so many different lanes and corners. One of those lanes and corners, I was going to say, is New York City under the tutelage of Stretch Armstrong. Now, here it is. And talking to John about this in the little segment, we were kind of nervous. We didn't want to make this, you know, very name droppy and kind of little recap because his talk and his time is way more than that. But it's about an interaction he had between himself, Stretch Armstrong, and Shaq. Yes, the, <laughs> the one of the greatest basketball players of all time. I think this is why we chose to use this piece is because... Yeah, we have this amazing up-and-coming DJ. We have this legendary New York DJ. And we have this athlete who just won a championship. But all that shit does not matter in the face of music. Everybody was equal. Everybody was just a fan, an enthusiast, a creator of music. And it really just, it just kind of cuts through all the kind of status and what have you of uh, just everyday life. It was even funnier, uh, if you go back listen to the episode, Shaq is like showing off his music CD collection. He's telling Stretch, I want you to tell people that I'm a great rapper and I'm legit. You know, and he doesn't have to do that. He literally just won a basketball championship. So check out this whole story and kind of keep that in mind as listening to it. It really just, it's, it's kind of like a peek behind the curtain and, and really just shows the power of music and kind of why we do this. The story's never been told on the record, okay. but it was definitely the craziest shit. This basically happened right after Stretch decided that I was going to be working for him full time. And to celebrate that, you know, he was a big DJ at the time. So anytime he got flown out to DJ somewhere, he would get a plus one, which was really cool. And I had seen all these other people be his plus one in his time as an intern. Yeah. And then now, like, he was just like, yo, I'm going to Vegas next week to play magic for the Triple Five Soul Party. Like, roll with me. And I was like, oh, like, fuck yeah, like, this is happening. So I'm 20 years old at this point. 
We're going to Vegas. So we go to Newark Airport. We're on Sun American Airlines. I'll never forget this. It's terrible airlines. Very short-lived. And we get there. And it's like the flight is delayed like five hours or something like that. Like it was just, it was no joke. And we're like all the way out in Newark. It's raining and it's all bad. And then I had, uh, my father had given me, I remember he said, he gave me his TWA uh, first class lounge card. And he's like, you know, if you're ever in the airport, you can use this, you can go hang out in the lounge. So I just had it in my wallet. And then so I said to Stretch, I was like, the TWA first class lounge is right there. Let's just go in there and chill. You know, we can get free cheese and what have you. So we go in there. I go, oh, shit, there's Shaquille O'Neal. And this is maybe two or three months after he had won the first L.A. championship with Kobe. So this is August 1999. I'm like a huge Lakers fan. There he is. And Stretch goes, he's with Peter Guns because that was his best friend. He's like. I know Peter Guns. Like, let's go meet Shaq. So we go up to them, and Stretch is like, yo, Peter, you know, what's good? Da, da, da. And then, uh, you know, we meet, this is Mike, and then uh, Shaq kind of introduced himself. He goes, yo, you're Stretch from Stretch and Bobito? And we're just like, yeah. And he's like, oh, man. Like, instantly takes out his two-way pager. We're all beaming each other, two-way contacts. It was crazy. It was really wild. And so then we go and sit kind of on the other side of the lounge, and then our two-ways go off. And we each had a page from Shaq that said, let these motherfuckers know that I'm the illest b-ball player on the mic. And then he was like reading a magazine and he saw that we had checked the text and he, he pulls down the magazine and kind of has his eyes and he kind of nods at us. And we're just like, oh my God. And he's like, yo, come on over here. He starts showing us his CD collection. And we're now just like hanging with Shaq and uh -huh. Peter Guns. What was, in, and what was in the, the CD thing? If you It was literally like 500 CDs. Okay. I specifically remember that like Tony Touch the Peacemaker was on, like it had just come out. Like he had... Every rap CD that had come out in the last four years was in, <laughs> in, his, in his gigantic his, folder. His gigantic <laughs> case logic folder uh -huh. that he was flying with. It's not yeah. even his check luggage. Like he needed to bring this. <laughs> this is the fortuitous occasion is that it gets to be like midnight. They come in, they say that we're closing the lounge. And Shaq is like, nah, don't make me go out there. You know, there's like 500 people out there and I'm Shaquille O'Neal. Like I'll be in alive. And they're like, well, this is Newark. Like, fuck you, Shaquille O'Neal. Like, get the fuck out of here. Like, go out there. And so he walks right out there. He just gets mobbed. Can I take a picture? Take a picture? Take a picture? And he has to just say no. Otherwise, he's going to be sitting there like a standee just taking pictures and pictures. And so that's instantly alienating. Like, this is everything he didn't want to happen. So everyone now hates Shaq. And Shaq is there, but everyone's watching Shaq. And so a lot of the gates were closed because it's pretty late. So he's like, Come on, we're going to go hang out over there. And so him and Peter Guns and, and Shaq's cousin start walking over there. And then he's like, you're stretching Mike. Like, you're coming with us, right? Uh -huh. We're like, oh, yeah, of course. Naturally, Shaq. Yeah. We're, we're going with you. Yeah. And so there's basically us sitting at this closed gate with all the space in the world. And then 500-something people on the other side of the terminal just like in silence staring at us, Oh God, <laughs> which is great. Right? I'm just like, Hey, this is my best friend, Shaquille O'Neal. <laughs> also stretch Armstrong and Peter guns. Yeah. Why, why not? What the fuck, dude? Yeah. So this is my life. We need to animate this. Yeah. Like everything's, <laughs> yeah. it's all happening. Yeah. Also, uh, this is, we haven't even gone on a play. Like I'm headed to Vegas. I'm uh -huh. 20. Oh, so, oh yeah. I forgot. Yeah. You're, still going to, you're still going to magic. <laughs> yeah, there's so much yeah, more. Yeah, yeah. So basically we're there. And then this is when I want to say the man was Shaquille O'Neal's, 
cousin. But at least that's what he was introduced to us as, who, as I understand it, his job was to entertain Shaq in times of boredom. So I sat and watched this man make more money than most people make in a year doing ridiculous stuff. Shaq would basically be like, I'll give you $5,000 if you go over there uh, to the microphone and tell everybody all flights are canceled. <laughs> you know, this is pre-9-11 uh, airport, okay. so it's just everyone's fucking just doing whatever they want. Yeah. So the guy just walks up to the mic, oh, sorry, everybody, all flights are canceled, and uh-huh. everyone's <laughs> getting all upset, and Shaq's rolling around on the floor laughing hysterically, uh-huh. grabbing me and Stretch by the leg. Like, I remember specifically Specifically, he had his hands on one of each of our ankles and he's looking up and I was going, ah, <laughs> rolling around on the floor. And me and Stretch are looking at each other like, this is really happening right now. Like Shaquille O'Neal is making physical contact with our ankles. He's on the floor and he's staring at us laughing hysterically. And Peter Guns. And that guy just got $5,000. Peter Guns is like listening to his headphones. Now he's always checked yeah, out. This, this is his this everyday is Tuesday life. For him. Yeah. This is Tuesday. Yeah. He's just doing his thing. Yeah. And then the guy is, you know, I'll give you 10 grand. You go run around the terminal barking like a dog. We watched all this happen for a while. Uh-huh. The reason Shaq was here was because his jet was a timeshare and he had run out of hours uh-huh. and he was supposed to take his jet to get to Magic, to go to... Oh, he was going to Magic, too. Yeah, to do the Twism booth. <laughs> Twism, it was yeah. his clothing line, <laughs> exactly, right? Exactly, yes. yes. Twism yeah, was the world, the world is mine. That's what it stood for. Yeah. <laughs> wow, 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 um, wow, wow. So he was going to do the Twism booth, and so he had to get to Vegas, and he had just, like, I guess they got to Newark, and it turned out, like, the next guy needed the jet, and he needed to get on this Sun America flight. He starts showing us pictures of what he's been doing. He's been hunting in Florida, which was like him and his friends using handguns to kill livestock or some such. It was very peculiar stuff, yeah. like really strange pictures, just like him and like a farmer and like a Glock and like some cattle. It's what and I was just like, too. what do you got? Yeah, it was just, okay, cool. This is what you've been doing with, yeah. the, with your championship. And it, <laughs> it was really cool. He played us some demos. How um, are they? They were fine. It was like him fine. and Mastakilla and him. You know, I mean, you've heard Shaq rap, I'm sure. It's, yeah. It's, it's, like it's, Vanny, it's a Vanny project. Yeah. yeah. He, I mean, he genuinely loved it. He was a lovely guy. He was nothing but funny and cool to us. And he was a fan of stretches. He had no idea who I was. Very nice to me. Yeah. And this went on and on. And by some stroke of luck, uh, by the time it came time to board the flight, we get a call. And it's like, Mr. Bartos, Mr. Brillstein, please come up to the desk. And they're like, you guys have been upgraded to first class. Now, I don't know if this had been arranged by Shaq or what I have to assume. Yeah. But also we had been we had checked in and we'd been at the airport for like longer than anybody. Mm-hmm. But first class ended up being <laughs> this group of people. So it's me, Shaq, Peter Guns. Shaq's cousin and Stretch. Oh, and Shaq's like cousin. One yeah. other person. Yeah. And that was first class. Uh-huh. So pretty much everyone fell asleep, except for Shaq and I. I remember that we both watched The Skulls was the movie, the Joshua Jackson uh, classic, The Skulls. And I remember not enjoying it and taking the headphones off, and I was ready to make like snarky film school comments to Shaq. And he's like, yo, that shit was crazy. <laughs> like, and he loved it. And I'm like, yeah, it was crazy, Shaq. And then he showed me some more CDs. I remember this, and we talked about Nas for a while, and then we got to Vegas, and then that was basically that, and his parting words to us, I'll never forget, it was like, a, we were like a pair, so he just goes, uh, see you later, Stretch and Mike, <laughs> <laughs> and then we walked off, and uh, for like a week later, Stretch got many two ways from him, just like, don't forget, you know, I'm sending you the tracks, and, and it was always really exciting, and we would like 
when the season started again, we were like sending him two ways, like, yo, kill it on the court tonight. Ah. We never, <laughs> we never really heard back Break from a him. Leg. You know, that was it. Yeah. But that was, I mean, all, all said and done, it was probably like a nine or 10 hour experience of really just like being in real close quarters and very friendly with Shaquille O'Neal. And Peter Guns. And Peter Guns. Yeah, let's not forget Peter Guns. Let's forget. <laughs> Oddly enough, Peter Guns much less involved in the conversation than Shaq. Like Peter Guns was just kind of doing. Like he was there. He was very yeah. quiet, and very cool. When Shaq says "Take it easy, stretch your mic," were you like, "All right, Shaq and Peter," or were you? What'd you say? We Dang. just smiled at each other. Yeah. Like <laughs> fucking Shaq knows our names, you know? Yeah, for at least the next few weeks. And yeah. was, I remember thinking, like, oh, we gotta find the Twism booth tomorrow. Yeah, yeah we I got about go. to say what? what, See, what is but there's you know there's no this is again this is the time where there's. I didn't even have a cell phone. Like, never mind a camera phone. We didn't have digital cameras. We certainly weren't going to go buy a camera at the gift shop and try to take a picture. Like, you just had to, like, yeah. enjoy the experience, you know? A big shout to Mike B. Uh, just, I think he delivered something that I never thought we'd get on the show. Just kind of oddball Hollywood, you know, athlete tidbits. But there are a lot more than that, like I said. It wasn't just a bunch of name dropping. It was something that was uh, significant. So, thank you for listening to Season 2 Recap. Thank you for listening to Season 2 if you've been a fan. And if you, you know, maybe you've been down to Season 1, thank you. We are literally in the process of recording Season 3. We got some awesome guests. The episodes so far have been totally stellar. Uh, shout out to John Reyes, Stank Palmer. Uh, give it up to me, King Most, I guess. And I think, you know, we had to kind of needle this you know, this whole season. It's really about DIY, taking matters in your own hands, and kind of, you know, getting out of your comfort zone. So with that being said, opening set season two. Thank you for checking us out. Season three comes. We got some surprises in between. And, uh, yeah, stay in touch and let us know uh, what we're doing, uh, what you like. All right, bye.